When Dorothy feels she's fallen into a rut, she goes out of her comfort zone, and it pays off when she makes a new friend. But when said pal, Barbara, meets Rose and Blanche, there is immediate friction. No matter how many times they all hang out, trying to be friends for Dorothy's sake, they just can't get along. Will Dorothy see the dark side of Barbara the girls are warning her about? Will Dorothy choose to attend a writer's party or a costume party? Will Sophia and Maury get freaky in that ruffled tux? Find out all of that and more in today's episode, Dorothy's New Friend. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. I hope you know you'll always be my sisters. We've got a classic episode today, and it starts with a lovesick Sophia in a purple paisley dress under a white apron, busy cooking lasagna for a fella at the senior center which is all juicy news for weekend casual pink sweatshirt wearing Blanche, who simply must know more about the cute guy. Correcting her, Sophia informs Blanche that the man hasn't a hair or tooth of his own, and he's decorated in liver spots like a Dalmatian. So yes, he's adorable. From the back door, Ellen is here with a costume. It is a great honor, one that you cannot refuse. It is ordained. There is no way out. My bad, it's yellow dress sporting Rose who has come home with a delightful campy getup for the upcoming masquerade ball. I'm not sure what kind of interpretation of the black tie event with minimal face coverings this horse, donkey, also Dalmatian abomination is, but I'm here for it. Is it like that she doesn't understand what a masquerade ball is? Well, I and don't so she's know. Like, oh, I gotta. I always dress as a horse for all the costume parties in St. Olaf. But it's their sixth time going. And later, Blanche talks about going as Eve. So they're going full-on costumes, no theme, apparently. And also, that's not a masquerade ball. I like the idea that they are... <laughs> they're they, the only ones? That they, they've gone, every, yeah, six years in a row, and they're kind of, like, always bummed out because no one really... Everyone kind of dresses <laughs> the same, and they, like, have crazy costumes. They didn't read the, the invitation, I think. I like that idea, that's too. That's fun. Thank you. Also, what did you interpret that animal... Uh, of the costume, what did you think that was? It, it kind of looked like a like a unicorn a little bit to oh, me, but like okay. a, like a unicorn without a horn. I guess it's just a white horse. <laughs> 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 but it looked like magical or something. Yeah, to it me had in that kind way. of mascot deformity. Yeah, it, everything was just off a little bit. Yeah, it was not a, just a straight up horse. No, <laughs> is what I meant. I guess. <laughs> wow, the way I say things sometimes, huh? Rose is just tickled as pink as the ascot the horky is wearing and can't decide if she should be the head or the butt. Feeling sweet as she's sweet on a man, Sophia doesn't even make a comment correlating Rose's jackass nature to her costume choice. I just decided that that's a horse donkey. I think that that's also a mule, but that doesn't count for this costume. No, a mule would be very, very distinct. Quite distinct. <laughs> I feel like this animal 
is a horky. Yeah, if it, it yeah, what I don't I don't even think we see the back end of it, but I feel no. like it, whatever it is, it doesn't match. Well, I just love the idea of petite Rose with that head on and being the front part and then not as petite because she's, you know, six feet tall. That's a long horse. Dorothy. <laughs> so the butt is going to be like much higher up than the front end. I'm. It's really a bummer we didn't get to go to the ball. Or just see them wearing the two halves. They don't even have to be in position. But yeah. just let me see her walk out of a, Dorothy <laughs> walk out get, of a room in those. Trying to get to the car. <laughs> please. <laughs> Fan fiction. Gmail us. Also coming in the back, but with much less Ellen bursting into the room energy, is Dorothy. In her pale pink blouse and pale pink scarf with a pale blue jacket adorned with pale pink flowers. Dorothy is clearly fed up. But with what, we aren't quite sure. Perhaps it's all the events the ladies go to, as she takes it as bad news to hear it's already time for the annual counseling center ball. It is the event of the season. As Blanche and Rose try to compensate for Dorothy's downer demeanor, she pushes back. There's no way this ball will be fun. I don't even know what fun is anymore. Ah, yes. Now I remember why I relate to Dorothy so often. She loves to wallow in her depression and yell at people for being jerks. Ah, my queen. But this isn't just a little bout of the blues. Dorothy is stuck in what could possibly be described as a three-quarter life crisis. Everything she does is the same motionless, emotionless, joyless, every day. This talk reminds Sophia of her love life with Salvador. Joyless and he would do it when he thought you were asleep. What a winner. And let's not forget that he had noodles hanging out of his mouth when that happened. <laughs> and that's canon. But what Sophia wants to know is where, in contrast to all of her boo-hooing, is Dorothy's sense of adventure, her devil-may-care attitude. Blanche can't believe Dorothy ever lived life with such reckless abandon, and she hasn't. These questions have been asked from mother to daughter for the last 50-plus years. Coming to the rescue with her own advice, Blanche celebrates Dorothy's blandness. With the same logic of if there were no evil, there could be no good, without Dorothy's zaboring life, others wouldn't seem so exciting. It's not like there are enough sailors in the world to have everyone live like Blanche. Holding her cow-dog-horse-beast head up to Dorothy's face, Rose uses it to remind her that joy and excitement comes from within. If you want to spice things up, you are the one that has to choose to do so. Dorothy knows she's right, and Sophia doubles down by telling her, okay, then go do something about it. Well, it just so happens that local author Barbara Thorndike will be speaking at a school lecture. Perhaps that's a great first step in creating a more exciting life. Barbara Thorndike, say, asks Sophia, didn't she write Evil Winds over Pensacola? Dorothy is shocked to hear that her mother knows the name of a writer, let alone a book, a book that Sophia goes to bed with every night. Not because she loves reading it, she never has, in fact, but because her bed lost a caster and she uses it to keep it level. You'd think with all of her superstition, she wouldn't use something with the word evil in it in regards to her bed. Dorothy, who is now in a partially striped blouse that, when I saw it, I could only think of Bobby McFerrin scatting. With patches of olive green, yellow, and red, this thing really screams, liberal arts white lady. And along with bringing the style, she's also bringing coffee to the coffee table. Well, in answering mine and Blanche's question, Dorothy is having company. 
She not only went out of her comfort zone by going to the lecture, but she was so moved by Barbara's speaking, she approached her after the event. Once they got kicked out of the lecture hall, they went out for coffee. They hit it off so well, she invited her over, and Thorndyke took her up on it. Dorothy is still riding high from the art, work, and life conversation they had. It was truly restorative. Feeling offended at the allusion to the Richmond house lacking in the exciting conversation department, Blanche, who is rocking a yellow pant jacket combo with an equally bright teal t-shirt, before she can make her point, Rose enters, stunned at the news she's just read. Still concerned with Michael Jackson's purchasing of the elephant man's remains, Rose is reading a tabloid full of malarkey regarding he and the Big Bopper, a.k.a. Giles Perry Richardson Jr., who died in a plane crash along with Richie Valens and Buddy Holly, was actually buried twice in Texas. His body was exhumed at the request of his son in 2007 to dispel rumors that had persisted 50 years after the air disaster. So, sorry, Michael, I don't think they're going to be up for bids. The stupidity of Rose's comment has Dorothy giving Blanche a look of, see what I mean? And Blanche responding with a silent, well, of course what Rose said was stupid. In an effort to defend herself, Blanche tells Rose to toss the garbage magazine. It's only made to entertain idiots, leaving Rose confused as to why Blanche would buy it which leaves me loving the visual of Rose, like a little kid, sneaking into Blanche's room to find her tabloid. Besides, Blanche has a good reason for buying it. There's no other magazine that's able to make contact with the ghost of Elvis. Embarrassed by the trash, Dorothy takes the magazine from Rose, hoping to hide it before Barbara shows up. That news has Rose not caring she doesn't have anything to read. She's just excited to meet an actual author. Blanche is excited too, but like so many things in her life, this won't be the first time. She once stood in line for over two hours just to meet the best-selling author, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Apparently, Blanche had some bodybuilding to do, as the books Arnold had written by 1987 were primarily focused on that subject. Now, if you want some real juice, my friend Matt highly recommends Arnold's memoir, Total Recall. That's the perfect title. Yeah. That's delightful. That's making me <laughs> smile so hard. That's really funny. Very cute. Good job, Arnie. <laughs> Please fasten your seatbelt. I want Clay delivered alive for reimplantation. That's for making me come to Mars. You wouldn't hurt me. After all, we're married. Consider that a divorce. Uh, yes, Dorothy sarcastically agrees. Right alongside William Faulkner, writer of, among other Southern classics, The Sound and the Fury, and winner of Nobel and Pulitzers, along with F. Scott Fitzgerald, writer of The Great Gatsby, should be listed with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hopefully Blanche won't ask Barbara to sign her thigh as she had with Arnold. Speaking of thighs, he would have had room for plenty of signatures on his as it had a circumference of 28.5 inches, Contrary to Dorothy's joke, I would guess Blanche's thigh was about a third the size. Arriving home in a blue-gray dress with a stunning pink floral pattern and light pink cardigan is Sophia, who grouchily offers the girl some of her lasagna. When she offered it to her man friend, he dismissed it on account of having already eaten? Well, he would need to have dinner, so Sophia offered to take it to his house that night and warm things up. You know, melt the cheese stir the sauce, a little of the old broiling on top. 
but even that was rejected. It's clear to Blanche as to why Sophia came off as easy, but Sophia begs to differ. Why, she couldn't look easy if her titties were covered in pasties and her biddies were in a black pair of undies. So off Sophia sadly goes, but then the doorbell. Barbara is there and everyone is excited. Entering the house in a bright blue jacket suit, but late 80s style where the proportions are terrible. You know, the skirt is too short and the jacket's too long. It's Bonnie Bartlett playing the thorned one. She has had a long, successful career going as far back as the Patty Duke and Jackie Gleason shows, and she worked as recently as 2017 on Better Call Saul. Betwixt those credits, she had over a hundred others, including, but not limited to, Key and Peel, Parks and Rec, Grey's Anatomy, Firefly, Home Improvement, ER, Dave, Murder, She Wrote, Lou Grant, Knott's Landing, Eight is Enough, Little House, Kojak, Gunsmoke, The Waltons, Twins, where she played author Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito's mother, The Girl's Favorite, Hotel, La La, and she let the dramatics fly in the after-school special, She She Drinks drinks a Little. Are you trying to tell me that you went to some kind of a meeting? And you told them that your mother's an alcoholic? Common drunk? No, it's nothing like that. Ungrateful little brat. Adorable fact, she had a multi-episode appearance on Boy Meets World working with her husband, William Daniels, a.k.a. Mr. Feeney. But that wasn't the first time they had worked together. They were first together on St. Elsewhere in roles that, in 1986, gave them the distinction of becoming the second married couple to each win Emmys on the same night. In just a few weeks, they will be celebrating 71 years of marriage. Now, I almost ordered a cameo from Bonnie as she and her husband both have accounts, so go check it out. You can order a birthday message. But I did watch one where she referenced Barbara, and I know we haven't gotten to the big twist of her character yet on the episode, but it seems that maybe Bonnie doesn't fully understand just how much of a villain she was. After meeting the girls, Blanche kicks off the conversation by wanting to discuss Barbara's writing. Oh, but she isn't an author. Bernard Malmood is. She's just a writer. While she is technically an author, as her work has been published, she is taking the moment to make a reader's joke. I do find it shocking that she would read the famously Jewish-American novelist Bernard Malmood's work. He was most famous for his novel, that became a Robert Redford film, The Natural. No, Rose, we aren't talking about the cookie chocolate marshmallow treat Malamars, which are still available. In her sweet white sweater with random designs, Rose stares in confusion as Barbara looks back at her in disgust. And with a slow, heavy voice of embarrassment, Dorothy points out the difference. Initiating her own quiet version of Shut Up, Rose, Barbara brings out a copy of her newest book, Scarlet Dawn at Boca Raton, and gives it to Dorothy with an inscription and all. To Dorothy, a new and fascinating friend. Dorothy is so moved by the gesture. And I love just how pleased and delighted the girls are for Dorothy. They're watching this new relationship unfold, and they're just so damn happy for their friend. Nearly skipping out of the room, Dorothy goes to get coffee, while Blanche and Rose are left to entertain the guest. Going with what she knows best, Blanche compliments Barbara's brooch. Well, she picked it up in Morocco when she was going for a walk while working through writer's block. She had been busy fiddling with a story and a man, but she just couldn't move forward. She hadn't a thought in her head. 
a feeling Rose validates as she was quite accustomed to the feeling. Of course, that's not because she too experiences writer's block. She's just a sweet little dummy. Realizing the wheels are starting to quickly fall off this conversational wagon, Blanche smirks awkwardly before getting back to her favorite subject, men. So there Barbara was, out in a market to clear her head, when a man approached her and put the brooch in her hand, telling her it was what she needed, just like the experience Blanche had in the produce section of the grocery store. Be it actual luck or just psychosomatic, Barbara's writer's block has never returned. It may seem like a small trinket, but that scarab-looking brooch is like Dumbo's feather. It is her luck, livelihood, and prized possession. Seeing as it's a wearable item, Rose counts it even luckier that it matches everything. Well, perhaps not plaid, Blanche interjects. Slightly offended by the surface-level understanding of the brooch and her tail, Barbara is offended the girls took so little from what she had said. So Blanche suggests she just tell the story again. But Barbara isn't interested in doing that. Struggling through the awkward silence, Rose chimes in with asking Barbara if she likes to go bowling. Bowling? Why, she's offended you even said that word to her. Before the girls can upset Barbara's delicate sensibilities any further, Dorothy comes in with the coffee. Telling Dorothy how nice her time has been with Madge and Rose, Barbara decides she can't handle an afternoon filled with fashion and bowling conversation, so she makes up an excuse to bounce. Sad to hear, Dorothy very pleasantly doesn't beg or make Barbara feel bad. Instead, she just offers to walk her to her car. Left alone, Blanche wants to know what Rose is feeling about Barbara. Well, there's something she just doesn't like. Me too. Rose thought she was difficult to speak to. Me too. And Rose is pretty sure she thinks she's dumb. Me too. <laughs> the next day, Blanche is at the table in a purple shirt covered in late 80s geometric shapes. Think a hammer pant pattern. And she's reading So Dark the Waters of Biscayne Bay by Barbara Thorndike. Excited about the upcoming ball, Rose comes in in her previously worn light blue sweater with adornments that make her look like she's playing a sailor in an old Shirley Temple movie. She wants to hear if Blanche has costume ideas for Friday's extravaganza. In fact, she does. With the help of some leaves in the right places, Blanche will be going as Eve, as in Adam and Eve. Hank Quinlan, her date, will be playing the role of a snake as he is a whiplash attorney, a.k.a. one of the more slimy areas of law work. When Dorothy in a black shirt and oversized taupe cover come in, they invite her to a movie that they're going to later in the evening. She would love to, but she and Barbara are headed to the experimental theater. Blanche is happy to miss out on that. She went once and hated it. She wanted to leave, especially when the three naked except for masks men on stage got to their fifth hour of rambling about God and graham crackers. But she only stuck around because she knew she recognized one of those actors— the one with the small part. Talk about a masquerade ball. This reminds me of a personal story where I was taken to an experimental theater in downtown Portland. At the time, many of my friends were in a production of Hair, but it was out in the gorge. And so they're like, let's go to this other company and watch their production of Hair. And it was in a, I'd say warehouse, but that makes it sound large. So like garage and... You had to take off your shoes, so all of our shoes were in a circle around the room, and we just sat on the ground, and they did the first half, and if anyone knows the play hair, the second half is nude, and out came the cast. 
totally nude and we were all sitting on the floor and they were in the middle of the floor so everything's just eye level and then they had the nerve to have these actors sit down where we had to take our shoes off that sounds awful i really feel like you need a big um well ventilated room it was not for something like that it had a for so it many had reasons. a little lifted like a well it had like a garage door and i think that was up a little bit I would I would be upset to smell another person's pews <laughs> that is not a sexual partner. I'm supposed to be looking up at them singing. I I know I'm supposed to be refined and whatever. What do you think I'm looking at? It's right. It, everything's right in my face. That's what I'm looking at, and I can't focus <laughs> on what they're singing because they're like step. They're gonna step on us and they're gonna fall down, and they're naked. It's like that's cool, but also leave me alone. Leave my shoes alone. Don't get my shoes involved. <laughs> Far too close to my flip-flops. On. They were on them? There was there was a point that I had great concern that there were testicles on my flip-flops. This is on a different night? No. <laughs> After hearing that harrowing tale, Rose is desperate to have Dorothy go with them to save her the misery. And besides, Blanche adds, Barbara's a snob. Well... This sends Dorothy into defense mode. You can't think she's a snob. You don't even know her. And they don't know her, Rose says, because they haven't been included in their plans. In all fairness, Dorothy is allowed to have other interests and other friends. To make up for lost roommate time because she spent it with Barbara the last few days, Dorothy promises to do a roommate activity soon. And maybe they were wrong, Blanche thinks aloud. Perhaps they just misread Barbara and it was just a bad first impression. Rose agrees, and it reminds her of the mean old lady back in St. Olaf. She was mean old lady Hickenlooper, legally. She had changed her name after years of bullying and chanting from the neighborhood children. Not scared of the M-O-L-H, Rose confronted her, asking why she was always frowning and grimacing at the children. Turns out, she hadn't been born with her zygomaticus major, the most important muscle when it comes to smiling. When Rose told her a smile was just an upside-down frown, mean old lady would do a headstand and smile at Rose and give her a big wave from that day on. Although St. Olafians named themselves after what they were called by others, Rose couldn't change her name to Big Dummy. There were already three of them in town. This story proves to Blanche that her first impression of Rose, we assume that she was dumb, was correct but they've decided they'll invite Barbara over for a dinner so everyone's friendships can be right as rain. As the girls gather their things to go to the movies, Blanche asks Rose what she first thought of her. Oh, easy, that she wore too much makeup and she was a slut. But now she's gotten to know her. She knows the real Blanche, and she doesn't wear too much makeup. The dinner has been planned, invites sent out, and it's already taken place. This has been a busy week. As Barbar, in brown pants and a yellow blouse, comes walking in the house, telling stories of Dorothy Parker, a writer of poetry, essays, screenplays, and more, who was adored for her wit, with quotes like, The Pride Month Appropriate, Heterosexuality is not normal, it's just common. And theater critic and writer Alexander Wolcott, a cream sweater, taupe skirt wearing Dorothy, is just tickled at her joke. A joke I don't fully get, but... Alexander Wolcott proposed or was engaged at least five times, so maybe it's something about him being a playboy? 
Meanwhile, following behind them is Rose in a blue and teal skirt and peplum blouse set and Blanche in head-to-toe shimmery gray. They aren't quite as amused. The only time Rose can remember anything as clever was the week before when she was watching Alf and he was trying to get the neighbor's cat. Blanche's arm puts a stop to Rose's lower brow reference. We have no way of knowing how dinner went, but based on Blanche's behavior, we can assume not well. Mentioning how she had read Biscayne Bay, Barbara's first book, Blanche is delighted to hear that Barbara's writing has improved since then. Dorothy is shocked at Blanche's remark, but Barbara wants her to proceed. Blanche's biggest issue was the waves. There were big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. The waves were so continual she had to take seasick medication to get through it. As Barbara starts to become annoyed at her ignorance, she starts Thorndike explaining what a metaphor is, as if Blanche is some sort of idiot. But the idiot across from her, Rose, it doesn't really know what it is. Without making fun or being frustrated, Blanche very plainly states a metaphor is when you say one thing to mean another, like how Blanche will sometimes say a man was blinded by her beauty. It's not like it actually happens. They'll be able to see again soon when the stunningness wears off. In a brown checkered dress and blue coat, Sophia's headed to the door when she is introduced to Barbara. When the compliments towards Dorothy come spewing forth from Barbara's lips, Sophia literally laughs them off, attributing them to a writer's creativity. As soon as her cackling stops, there's a car horn that sounds more like that from a semi-truck or train. And with a shove to Barbara's side, Sophia's out for the night with a, well, goodbye. Surprised, Dorothy asks what Sophia's up to. In a mini picture it, she reminds her of what it's like to have someone outside honking for you on a weekend night when you're all dressed up. She's going on a date. Seizing the opportunity to leave, Barbara starts to make her escape, disappointing Rose, who had hoped they could all play the adult St. Olaf game, Oogle and Flugel. It's basically hide-and-seek in that someone hides and someone else seeks. Now who's the dummy, Babs? Unsurprisingly, Barbara passes on the game, but before she goes, she offers Dorothy a ticket to the writer's conference that Friday night. Without so much as a goodbye to Rose and Blanche, Barbara leaves. Having overheard the plans, Rose, puppy dog eyes and all, reminds Dorothy that she's already booked to be a horse's ass on Friday. In case Rose couldn't tell from Dorothy's earlier lack of enthusiasm for the ball, she isn't all that jazzed about it to begin with. And now, instead of staying at home, she can be surrounded by writers like Norman Mailer, who is best known for the Executioner's Song. He was a multi-hyphenate, actor, activist, filmmaker, who had bestsellers in seven decades. Or she can go to the ball and stare at Rose's butt all night, leaving Rose wondering which activity Dorothy will choose. Later that night, the gals are all cleaning up from dinner, Blanche using an SOS scrubber on a dish, she and Rose being overly polite with one another. After their little act, Dorothy recalls similar treatment to one of the three characters on Three's Company. Finally, a low-class reference that even Blanche and Rose can get. The girls aren't really bullying Dorothy, but they're making it very clear that they aren't happy with her decision to leave Rose buttless. Rose cares because it matters to her. Blanche cares because it matters to Rose. Can't Dorothy see how sad and pathetic and broken Rose has become? When Rose tries to clarify that she's not, like, that sad about it, Blanche asks her to shut up. Trying to find any type of caveat to get her out of feeling bad, Dorothy reminds them she never agreed to go. 
But that doesn't matter to Blanche. They've never agreed to go to the stupid ball, but they've always gone. So it's just assumed. It doesn't matter that they all hate it. They do it for their good friend because they are good friends. Dorothy knows what's at the root of all of the problems. They don't like Barbara, which Blanche totally owns. She thinks she's full of crap. Oh, really? Dorothy asks. And you, the person who uses the line, I was actress and bombshell Angie Dickinson's body double in the 1980 thriller Dressed to Kill, isn't? Coco. Hi. What can you tell the listeners about Dressed to Kill? It's a Brian De Palma-directed feature film, and it's very, as all of his movies are, very Hitchcock-influenced. Angie Dickinson plays a character who... Well, spoilers, gets murdered in the first 15 minutes. The movie's not about her. But in that 15 minutes, she goes to a museum. She goes to her psychiatrist. She has an affair. You see her boobs. Or Blanche's. You see Blanche's boobies. (laughs) And then she is murdered. (gasps) And then it's about finding out who the killer is. Ooh, is it good? I love it. Should we watch it? Yeah, it's like we watched Blowout. Yeah. From a year or two. That's also Brian De Palma. And it has that very, like, big, sort mm. of uh, over the top Hitchcock style. Fun. Yeah. Let's check it out. Cool movie. Michael Caine's in it. I've already been to the police, but I didn't tell them about Bobby. I wanted to talk to her first. Brian De Palma, the master of the macabre, who shocked audiences everywhere with Sisters, Carrie, Obsession, and The Fury now invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. <laughs> dressed to Kill. Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, Nancy Allen. Dressed to Kill. Murder. Made to order. But Blanche doesn't see the comparison. She's just telling a little fib. She's not being a disingenuous person. Rose comes to Blanche's rescue. She points out Barbara's snooty, patronizing behavior. She looks down on them and only allows Dorothy around because she's looking up to her. Why, just that night at dinner, Barbara said, Transite salis, asking for the salt in Latin. What? Something to be said, especially in Rose's company, only so you can point out that you speak Latin. They aren't reacting this way out of jealousy, just because Dorothy has a new friend, but because they are good friends looking out for her, and they don't want her feelings to get hurt by mean old lady Thorndike. Well, Dorothy won't stand for it. She doesn't see her friends as being caring, but as accusatory, judgmental, and rude, and she's had it. Going out to lunch the next day, during the longest week on record, we are outside what looks like a Swedish-German-inspired restaurant. And thanks to Coco, the Los Angeles boy, he recognized it as the Tam O'Shanter, a 100-year-old steakhouse located in L.A. Coco, is the inside decorated like that? Oh, it's super Scottish. It's very, I don't know if I'd say authentic because I've never been to Scotland, but. But did it look like in the show? Like, oh, yeah. What it looks like on the outside, it looks, that's what it looks like on the inside. Yeah. It's very. The checkered tablecloths and all that stuff. Tables and, yeah, wooden furniture and like crests on the walls. And it's great. Yeah. Wow. I believe I had a stew there or something and it was good or a sausage roll. (laughs) This was about 16 years ago when I still lived in Los Angeles. And I went there with my sister and we had a time. I think I was drunk. (laughs) Inside, the walls are adorned with sconces, drapes, and a quote by poet Edward Taylor that reads, 
It's food too fine for angels, yet come and get your fill. Here we find Barbara and Dorothy sitting down to lunch. Dorothy in a white dropped collar blouse and a pink jacket. Barbara in a blue jacket over an orange dress with a large bow, making her look like a sophisticated Donald Duck. The waiter hands them large novelty menus, and they take a moment to choose. With chapters and a table of contents, you'd think they were at the Cheesecake Factory. I would love to see the puns that didn't make the cut when it came to literary references and food. For the ones that did, they were based on The Grapes of Wrath, The Old Man in the Sea, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Catcher in the Rye, Playwright George Bernard Shaw, and Poet Edgar Allan Poe. As they await their food, Dorothy gets right to it. She's been very happy with their friendship, but their relationship is causing upset in the house. Barbara understands. She would want her advice, too, if she needed it. Now, it's not that Barbara's done anything to upset them. It's that they're feeling left out. Um, except that that's totally not the case, Dorothy. If you had been listening to your friends, they gave multiple legitimate examples of how Barbara was rude. They specifically said they didn't care about her having a new friend. But Dorothy did not want to hear it. Barbara could understand why the girls don't like her. They're so much more stupid. Not defending her friends against being called names, Dorothy starts to agree with Barbara. You know, it is bothersome to only talk sex with Blanche and St. Olaf with Rose, but they're friends nonetheless. Since Barbara likes Dorothy and Dorothy likes the girls, there must have been some charm Barbara didn't notice the two times she was with Blanche and Rose. So, to try to lessen the tension, Barbara offers to have everyone go to dinner at a very exclusive country club. I guess this is all happening tonight because it's got to be Thursday by now, right? Brad Trumbull, who is once again the maitre d' after the impotency incident during Brotherly Love, has arrived at the table with the food. Now the Iceman cometh joke. I've never understood Dorothy's response of, a little of that goes a long way. The phrase of the Iceman cometh means having someone killed, to be put on ice. So that means the Reaper is coming for you. As far as the famous play goes, it's a story of 1912 New York involving 12 men and three sex workers. They are all struggling with alcohol addiction, and they basically float through life. The play is about four hours long, so perhaps it's just a long, boring, upsetting story that only needed 15 minutes. I wish I could help you with that. I have no concept of The Iceman Cometh, except I think Lee Marvin was in a film adaptation of it or something. Goodbye. (laughs) Thank you, Coco. It's later that evening. Blanche is in her shimmery blue dress, Rose in her very light blue with shimmery seams, and they're both getting ready for dinner. Blanche is over the moon excited to be going to the Mortimer Club, but Rose is hesitant to waste any more time with Barbara. Of course, Blanche isn't excited about the delicious food or wonderful beverages. She just knows that the richest guys in town go to the Mortimer, and if she tells them that they're the best lovers, she'll be able to go on a shopping spree, courtesy of their credit card. In an all-gold dress and gold cardigan, Sophia has emerged looking stunning, followed by Dorothy in a black dress accented by red cuffs and a red scarf. She has another accent as well, Blanche's rhinestone necklace that she's borrowing for the occasion. That's fine by Blanche, but it might not look right on her non-dainty neck. Unfortunately for Dorothy, she doesn't know how to get in touch with boxer and 20-inch neck-having Mike Tyson to borrow some of his jewelry. When Blanche answers the door, she finds a copper-covered Barbara with a tuxedoed teen on her arm. She's blatantly taking a student out to dinner. 
Madge, or Blanche, is making a point as to how young the college-aged man looks by making a joke about Barbara teaching high school. It's official. The claws are out. Age on paper doesn't matter to old Thorny. She and her uncredited date are the same age in their spirits. Sophia isn't mad about it. If the young dummy buys into it, have fun. Not letting an elephant stay in the room, Barbara announces to everyone that she wishes for nothing but a pleasant evening that helps them all forget the dinner a few nights before. Heck, for Sophia, she's already forgotten, but she forgets a lot of things, like that her cat has been dead for 20 years, leaving her with only one question. Who the hell is using the litter box? But it leaves me with another. If your cat was long dead before moving in, why did you buy litter in the first place? With another doorbell chime, it's Murray, not to be confused with last week's prankster, Maury, and he's dressed to the nines, and by that I mean 1979s for dinner. In his light blue and ruffled tuxedo, he's making quite the statement. Playing Murray is Monty, Ash. Some of his more notable roles were in Blast from the Past, Married with Children, ER, Only You, Cheers, Troop Beverly Hills, Moonlighting, Twilight Zone, Highway Patrol, and Dragnet. After Sophia introduces everyone to Murray Gutman, Barbara goes out of her way to shake hands with the man before requesting Dorothy join her in the kitchen. There's a problem with Murray. Assuming it was the loudness of his suit, Dorothy assures her friend they can figure out a way to cover it up. But it's not the suit that has Barbara concerned. She heard his last name. The German-Jewish surname means husband or working man, and what she's focused on is the Jewish part. That's because the hoity-toity Mortimer Club is restricted, a.k.a. racist as hell, and won't allow Jewish people to enter. Ah! You're a dirtbag! Restricted clubs were usually focused on being anti-people of color or anti-Semitic. It wasn't until a ruling in 1990 that forced regulations and clubs to change, forcing them to allow anyone to join. After taking a moment to process what Barbara was saying, Dorothy's shocked. She can't believe her intelligent, charming friend would be a willing participant in something so racist. And this bitch has the caucasity to blame the club, saying that it's their rule, not hers. Right, except you're the one giving them money, which allows them to continually enforce those rules. Besides, why would she give up on free parking and a delicious breakfast? (laughs) Dorothy can't believe Barbara would tolerate such a thing, but she tolerates a lot like having to make conversation with Rose and Blanche just so she can stay friends with Dorothy. When Barbara tries to problem-solve by suggesting they go to another restaurant, Dorothy stops her. She realizes then and there that her friends were looking out for her best interests, and they were right about Barbara's vibe being super uncool. So Dorothy suggests Barbara and her youthful date, they just go there alone. When Barbara is still confused, Dorothy makes it completely clear how she feels. Damn it, no. No Hallmark audience that always cuts in because telling a racist to go to hell is too scandalous for your when-comes-the-heart viewers. You shush. Barbara Thorndike, on behalf of Dorothy, Blanche, Rose, Murray, and everyone else who has had to tolerate your bullshit, you can go to hell. Oh, that felt good. With the friendship over, Rose and Blanche are quick to come to Dorothy's side. Without hesitation, Dorothy apologizes for not listening to her friends and validating that they were right all along. On top of that, not only does she actually want to go to the ball now, 
she finds it only fitting that she dresses as she's been acting, like a horse's ass. New friendships are exciting. They're important. And while it may be harder as adults to make new friends, it's important to have variety in your life, different people to share different interests. But just like any relationship, it's important to take your time to get to know the person before diving all in, just as it's important to trust your closer friends to tell you if something is off. That doesn't automatically mean that they're jealous. They're just looking out for you. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we get game show crazy with Grab That Dough. Now, I did sleep with NyQuil, but I didn't uh, wake up like- You whore. I can- <laughs> Did I do that? Instead, I can say, my apologies. Did I do that? I would imagine that that would be a very hard life. I don't envy the fame and fortune and whatever to have people scream at you about cheese for the rest of your life. Not my Sonic. <laughs> I like the language you speak. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister. Hold one moment. I'm, let me refrain, rephrase it. Please refrain. <laughs> I'm trying to help. <laughs> It just so happens that local Arthur, Arthur, Barbara Thorndike, say, oh, huh. You put the yeah. wrong emphasis on the wrong Zaborn put- <laughs> Now, if you want some real juice, my friend Matt highly recommends Arnold's memoir. Oh, I made a kiss. Also like his most violent movie. Yeah. It's incredibly, <laughs> it's just wet, wet blood everywhere. Mutant flesh. Three boobs. Which are still available, whereas unlike my voice, which is leaving. Goodbye. The waves were so continual she had to take a C-sec. C-sec. And thanks to Coco, the Los Angeles. Oh, no, a burp. They're celebrating their 100th anniversary this year. You know, when I lived there, I think it was across from a Best Buy. So you go, you have some delicious food. You go, you shop for a Zune. You're having a great time. Go grab yourself an iPod shuffle. iPod? How dare you? Well, I'm sorry, but you said it. (laughs) (laughs) Another accent, Blanche's rhinestone next... With another doorbell chime, it's Murray, not not Kabir's.